came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited about this episode today because it's really close to our hearts, I think, talking about how people work together from a place of experiencing oppression or experience mm-hmm. inequality in different ways and actually use that shared experience as an opportunity to organize and show solidarity with each other. I know, and all through the lens of vulnerability, which as everybody knows is our favorite topic. Yeah, and we've obviously been working over the past few years on vulnerability. Uh, and we have a really special theoretical paper that we would love to share with everybody sometime soon. But I think our body of work together really intersects with our guests' work today. Joining us today is AJ Fast. AJ, finally, woohoo! It's been years. We've been waiting for you yeah. on this podcast because we absolutely love your work. And it's been really great to chat to you a little bit more about kind of various bits and pieces that you and Jason and me have been working on together. So welcome to Disasters Deconstructed. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Yay, <laughs> exciting. So quick introduction. Dr. AJ Fass is an Associate Professor of Anthropology in San Jose State University. Uh, AJ is a cultural anthropologist focusing on disasters, displacement, and resettlement. And most of AJ's work has been in rural regions of Ecuador and Mexico, the American Pacific Northwest, and the Bay Area. It's so great to finally have you with us on the show, and hopefully it won't be the last time. Um, So AJ, we've basically been asking the same sort of question to most of our guests in recent seasons of Disasters Deconstructed. And so we would love to know, and our audience would love to know, how you came to study disasters. Wow. For me, it's actually a pretty long story, so I'm going to have to try an abridged version. (laughs) I did have some experiences growing up that they didn't directly inspire me to go down this road, but my work and my approach have definitely long been affected by these childhood experiences that I had growing up in working class family and neighborhood in New Jersey, just west of New York City, that was hit periodically with some really powerful hurricanes while I was growing up in the 1980s. And I was young, but I remember there's one storm where it blew down all these trees on our house and damaged our house really bad. And I was about eight years old. And it's like, for the first time, there was this acute sense that like, Well, like the world outside is ungovernable, right? Like your parents can't keep you safe. I had that experience when I was really young. And I think back on that a lot. And I also think back as someone who spends a lot of time on different forms of helping, social support, mutual aid, and stuff like that, and cooperation and disaster. 
you know, I remember witnessing the sort of community support of how our family and friends and neighbors really helped repair and rebuild when I was growing up. So I think back on that a lot and that influences my work, but that didn't send me into this work. Also a few decades after those, those storms, when I was a child, I also completed a master's project in applied anthropology at Montclair State University. And that focused on racial segregation and anti-racist tenants organizing to resist gentrification. And that really helped establish some really important themes in my work later on when I finally got into disasters. But the direct line into working in disasters came during my time as a graduate student at the University of South Florida. I was living in Michoacan, Mexico, when I applied to the program in 2005, and right up until I began in this doctoral program in 2006. At the time, I had this sort of vague aspirations, as most of us do, going into graduate programs that I would, you know, complete a PhD and then work in international development or humanitarianism in Latin America. I didn't have much direction beyond that. And so I came to work under Linda Whiteford, who was working with several colleagues, Graham Tobin, Art Murphy, Eric Jones, and several partners in Mexico to study social support and adaptation to chronic hazards in indigenous Nahua communities around the volcano Popocatepetl in the Puebla state of Mexico. And I was happy to be working in these communities and with these applied scholars, and it was really a terrific experience, but I still didn't see myself working in disasters. I was just sort of biding my time till I found my way. But a few things happened at this time that really changed my trajectory. One was that the volcano Tungurahua erupted in Ecuador in that year in 2006. And since Linda had began her work in disasters when it first erupted in 1999, she and Graham not only took off to Ecuador to document the evacuation and response operations with the Instituto Geofisico, uh, they also assigned me to document and translate everything that was being reported by official sources and the press and everything. And right around the time, this is totally coincidental, but right around the time, I came across the work of an anthropologist by the name of Anthony Oliver Smith. Maybe you heard of him. And (laughs) once, once, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't his work in disasters, though. It was a chapter of his in a book on applied anthropology about development induced displacement and resettlement. I had not previously heard of his work. I was not studying disasters yet in my coursework or anything. And this was right as they announced in Ecuador that they were building these resettlements for all the folks, all of the campesinos that were displaced around the volcano Tungurahua. And there was one resettlement that was built by the federal government, one that was built by an American Christian NGO, and one that was built by an Ecuadorian NGO. And, you know, I was finally pitching my dissertation right as they were opening these resettlements in 2008. And all of those things just converged at once. And suddenly I was there. I sort of found my place and found my direction in Ecuador. And then I really started putting all this sort of stuff together. I also completed my dissertation in 2012 when a whole bunch of us Folks that you're familiar with, Susanna Hoffman, Tony Oliver-Smith, Roberto Barrios, Mark Schuler, Julie Maldonado, Beth Marino, Chao Yun-Shang, a whole bunch of us 
We formed the Risk and Disasters Topical Interest Group at the Society for Applied Anthropology. Um, and that really helped us build this robust and supportive community for a new wave of anthropologists working in disasters. So those are these formative experiences. Then that was the lock. We really formed this great community around disaster studies and anthropology. Jason, I have been recently reading your new book, In the Shadow of Tungrawa, and thank you so much for gifting it to us. You know, there is nothing better than receiving a book in the post. And as the season, we've mainly been talking about solidarity, which is a pretty prominent theme in your book. In particular, you write about Minga, and I quote, I gradually came to regard Minga as an institution or a set of related practices in which power relations are central, but which is pregnant with meaning for those who invoke and practice it. Minga is often conjured as emblematic of cultural values of solidarity, equality, and what I might call collective industriousness. It is a source of pride that is frequently mentioned in contrast to the perceived selfishness and greed of urbanites, elites, Americans, Europeans, end of quote. And then you continue to write a little bit later on, and I quote, we are surely more likely to miss cooperation that persists despite, or even because of, competition over scarce resources, end of quote. And so can you tell us perhaps a little bit more what Minga is and how you learned about it? And what did your research demonstrate about Minga? And why does it matter for disaster studies? Why should we know? Okay, yeah. Well, thank you for that setup. I think I want to try and answer that, answer the first half and then mm. get to the second half. So, you know, what is it and how did I learn about it? I think a lot of listeners are probably um, unfamiliar with Minga. It's not all that well known outside of folks working in the Andes. So let me just sketch that out a little bit and tell you how I learned about it. And then I'll come around to try and address, you know, what it means for us in disaster studies. There's so many different aspects of Minga, as I try to cover in the book about as extensively as one could. I tried to be as exhaustive as possible because it is a many splendored thing. But at its core, a Minga is a collective or cooperative work party. Uh, and it's one of several traditions of cooperative work parties from throughout the Americas and South America that date to well before the emergence of the early city-states and certainly the empires, but they were integral to these processes as well. Now, in the Andean highlands of Ecuador nowadays, um, the Mingas are typically organized at a village level by elected village leaders. And the requirement is typically that each household in the village sends one adult to work for the day. Typically, Mingas work on community or collective structures and infrastructures. Above all, it's like irrigation and potable water, but also roads and village meeting houses and cemeteries. And it's often said that Minga creates both the physical boundaries of a communities because it produces and maintains these structures and infrastructures, but that it also creates the human boundaries of communities because Minga participation is really a condition for good standing in any village. So there's a whole bunch of other rules and contingencies and histories and contextual factors, but I think that's enough to get us started. And like you said, my friends in Penipe 
as elsewhere in the Highlands, will speak passionately and with pride about Minga as solidarity embodied. And it's how they take care of one another, fulfill mutual obligations, and ensure their future. Now, as I said earlier, I came to Ecuador with an interest in studying resettlement, but also in studying cooperation in disasters. And this was in Ipe, which is a rural canton in the province of Chimborazo in the highlands. And the volcano Tungurawa sits at Penipe's northern limits and about three of its six rural parishes, each of which contains about a dozen villages of small holding subsistence farmers or campesinos. And so Tungurawa erupts very powerfully in 1999 for the first time in about 80 years, and then even more powerfully in 2006. And these subsequent evacuations and everything leaves nearly 10,000 campesinos displaced, many for about a decade. Um, and so I show up in 2009 when they're opening up a series of resettlements for the displaced folks some built by the government and some by NGOs from the U.S. and from Ecuador. And I lived in Penipe and worked with folks in the resettlements in their home villages for about two years at first and then continued going back. So I first learned about Minga in this early phase where I'm documenting press reports of residents in several communities around Tungurawa, organizing Mingas to clear ash and repair homes and community infrastructure following the eruptions in 2006. At the time, I was really primed by my reading of disaster studies to recognize this as a form of spontaneous cooperation that's commonly documented in disasters. And a lot of the folks around Tungurawa spoke of it in this coming together in the spirit of solidarity. Later, I was documenting how these resettlement organizations required Mingas in their resettlement programs, which seemed a bit less spontaneous. <laughs> so I learned of other government programs that also had mandatory Minga contributions from citizens. And my process of learning here was a bit long and tortured, but suffice it to say that I really had a lot of brushing up to do on the history of Minga in the Incan Empire, in Spanish colonialism, in the early Republic, um, to realize that Minga was always a, a long a part of statecraft in the Andes. And ultimately, I truly, and I hope I convey this effectively in the book, but I truly learned about Minga by working on countless Minga work parties myself in resettlements and in people's home villages from, you know, 2009 through 2012, and then again to 2013, 2018. And uh, yeah, that's sort of how I learned about it. There is so much we can learn and unpack for disaster studies, right? So for you, what is the most significant message that we perhaps as disaster scholars, as disaster practitioners should realize as we're learning about Minga? Well, I think that as a takeaway, we basically have three hypotheses about cooperation in the social sciences. The... First is this sort of, you know, maybe we call it the pro-social hypothesis, right? And that is the argument that humans are essentially altruistic and in the absence of social structures, we will naturally cooperate. And I think many people find this prospect alluring. It's a vision of the world that speaks to the fundamental sort of goodness of humanity. And of course, many people find this far preferable to the second 
sort of dominant hypothesis about cooperation, often called homo economicus, right, which posits that humans are naturally selfish individuals driven to seek maximum gain from minimal output. But Disaster scholars have introduced a third hypothesis as sort of a compromise between the two in a lot of ways, and often we refer to it as communitas, right, as this liminal or temporary phase that when the physical and social structures of society collapse in a disaster, then social divisions like race, class, gender, ethnicity tend to recede and people come together across all manner of differences to cooperate and look out for one another. But this is only temporary. This is the compromise, right? It's only temporary. And people will revert to competition and selfish interests, say, when aid arrives or when society begins to sort of reassemble. And I argue that, honestly, all of those hypotheses are pretty flawed. And and I think that they're flawed in that They didn't explain what I was witnessing in Ecuador, first and foremost, but I think that they they all rely to different degrees on a lot of assumptions about human nature Mm -hmm. uh, that are almost metaphysical in a lot of ways. And so for me, rather than seeing humans as either fundamentally altruistic or selfish, my work points to how society's institutions can help either sustain or undermine cooperation, right? And so studying Minga taught me to understand cooperation as an institution that has sets of rules, resources, values, and discourses. And so this gets us to rethink the question of, you know, will people cooperate in disaster or will cooperation last and how long? The answer is that the cooperation that endures post-disaster is the cooperation that begins long before, Mm -hmm. right? People will cooperate if these institutions are in place. And so I kind of joke about it a little bit in the book because after spilling a ton of ink, sort of arguing that as an institution with a storied history and it can't be considered spontaneous, of course, I collect and present lots of stories of people being rather spontaneous with Minga in the disaster. But here's the thing. It's a tool. If we take time to fashion the tools for particular purposes, we can usually adapt them to like emergent or contingent purposes, right? So my friends in the shadow of Kungurawa, when they're looking for ways to help one another in their time of need, they had Minga as the tool for their job, right? And so my work suggests that the rest of us could invest in the tools that we would take up in our time of need. So... If I can run down two more added bits of significance. Cooperation like Minga, it is solidaristic mutual aid, but it's not only that. It it doesn't require the absence of unequal power relations, as you were mentioning in the quotation earlier. It doesn't happen despite unequal power. Solidaristic mutual aid values and egalitarian relations contribute to Minga cooperation, but they're not its only determinants. It's an institution that is actually built, and I try to show this throughout the book, around constantly reckoning with power. And that's part of the beauty of how it works. There are rules and discourses of equality, solidarity, and fairness that are constantly being debated and haggled over. And they have both immediate and cumulative effects for keeping local inequalities in check. And while people do take certain contingencies into consideration. The overall process holds everyone accountable to the same standards. 
I think this is truly remarkable. When people in power demanded that villagers labor to rebuild after the volcanic eruption, the institutions of Minga also helped guarantee that these governing bodies would adhere to an ethics of fairness, reciprocity, and the collective good. Through Minga, villagers were able to force the hand of the state and these NGOs to provide necessary resources for their vital infrastructures and livelihoods. When I talk about the politics of deservingness and people arguing over rules and holding each other accountable and policing each other's work all the time, but these weren't simply interpersonal quarrels, you know, revealing people as ultimately selfish or individualistic. They were part of an institution of Minga and its emphasis on the collective. So when villagers argues about who did or did not deserve credit for Minga participation, they were drawing state and NGO and these humanitarian officials and administrators into this discourse, this moral fairness and deservingness, and really compelling them to be more accountable, more transparent in their administration of community affairs. So the villagers through Minga are able to hold the state whose operations are awfully, often hopelessly esoteric and really tremendously powerful that it's hard to really resist them head on, but they're holding them accountable. They demanded that people be treated fairly and reciprocated for their labor. That's so interesting. Sorry, Jason, I'm going to take us on, on a tangent. You know, as I was reading about Minga, it really made me think back to my Soviet childhood where we had, you know, what they were called Subotniks. It's like a basically day of unpaid labor, which happens on a Saturday. And so Saturday is Subota, that's the word Subotnik. But they were kind of the same in that it wasn't an activity, but it was an institution that almost voluntarily forced people to get together and do this unpaid labor. And that's almost providing a foundation for kind of organizing and for sorting out certain social and perhaps even power relationships, because everybody had to figure out, you know, how to fit. Otherwise, the question of deservedness would come. It's just something that I kept thinking about as I was reading the book. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time on this on the book, but I'm spending a lot of time speaking about it and writing about it since then. It's somewhat common for people to read the book and say something like, this reminds me of something right mm. from where I was growing up. And just like you said, right? I mean, in the Soviet system, it's, it's what's the expression? Voluntold? Right. It's not entirely voluntary. <laughs> right. Because it's an institution. Right. It's that's what right. I'm talking about. It's these collective sets of rules and discourses and expectations and relationships. They are built out of human action, but they also structure human action. Right. And I think that's really quite remarkable. And so if my work gets us, I don't think it's going to inspire the resurgence of the Soviet system anytime soon. But if it gets us thinking about and reflecting on the types of institutions that we either have and can strengthen and maintain in different societies or social contexts, or we can look to build, then then I think my work is doing hopefully something right. I love that you've complicated it and talked a bit more about how the the communities were able to bring in other other actors into that into those discourses and hold them accountable because like you said definitely some of the stories that you were sharing reflected like negotiations in daily life reflected these 
ongoing, sometimes rifts between people about deservingness when it came to resources or inclusion or choices. And you called it in the book, Politics of Deservingness. And so I was thinking about how we frame disasters, especially concepts of vulnerability and resilience. A lot of times those framings are built around durations of people's needs and rights and power dynamics, but we don't really talk about like who deserves what so much. There's just kind of a, everybody deserves the best kind of thing, but you really got into the everyday negotiation of this in the book which is great. But why do you think we don't talk about it more? Why do you think we just have this like broad, oh, everybody has a right to everything kind of um, narrative and we don't really get into the detail of why that isn't always possible? Well, thank you. I, I, I That's a good question. I think in many ways, disaster scholars, I think do frequently talk about deservingness. And to clarify for listeners, the politics of deservingness is sort of my shorthand for all the different contested distinctions that are made in everyday practice about who merits inclusion in the distribution of scarce resources. And this could be administered by the community, by civil society, by the state. And common markers of deservingness could be things like citizenship, residency, productivity, like are you employed, right? Racial and ethnic identity, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, membership, and the ultimate one is suffering, right? So if we're not moved by the inequalities or injustices in a society, but we are somehow moved by portraits of suffering, right? To try to include people in things. And and so I think that researchers and activists and, and practitioners talk about this all the time. But I think what you're getting at, Jason, is that they often do it in very locally specific terms, right? And not in, in terms that that collect these locally specific cases. So people are going to talk about their Katrina binders, right? And ask what more they have to do to demonstrate that they're deserving of aid. Erica Keppel James discussed the trauma portfolios and documented suffering during humanitarian crises in Haiti. I think we speak all the time about debates over who is eligible for one program or another, or how community recovery funds are targeted at uh, the, uh, one program I worked on here a few years ago, there was community recovery funds following a flood here in San Jose. $4 million were targeted for undocumented immigrants. And most of it went unclaimed because people were scared to come forward, right? And claim this sort of stuff. There were these fears about being targeted for detention, deportation, all this sort of stuff. So I think about, we talk about deserving this frequently, but I, but I hope my contribution can be is to help foster the development of dialogue across these different cases. I, I think that one of the advantages of what we often call theory in the social sciences, humanities, is that it helps us to develop a vocabulary that transcends these specific cases and helps us see the patterns we observe in disparate locations and put them in conversations with one another that hopefully accumulate into something like you know, a critical or unignorable mass of phenomena. But in addition to helping or contributing to a shared vocabulary for discussing these things across contexts, 
I hope to have contributed to some other important conversations about the politics of deservingness. You know, lots of folks discuss exclusion and types of state deservingness, and some people discuss community-level disputes of deservingness, and some discuss accusations of the state as a form of subaltern political strategy that compels transparency and accountability. But I hope in my work and in the Tungurawa book to have identified how these processes often work together as part of a sort of choreography or an ensemble of politics of deservingness. And sometimes when I say together, it doesn't mean always in a unified sense of purpose. It's often contested. It's often at cross purposes. So local disputes can reinforce state power, but they also frequently operate as a way of holding the state accountable. Yeah, I, I was thinking like a lot of the, I don't often hear the word deservingness, but like you said, it's, we talk about it in different ways, maybe entitlements, rights, but it's about access, right? And especially after a disaster, like who is going to have access to resources to recover? And uh, yeah, it's often dependent on proving that you suffered enough. Mm. Well, usually access to resources for recovery is often tied to trying to prove the appropriate level of suffering, right? And often that, like we've talked before on the podcast about the stark difference between solidarity and charity, mm. if you want to use those terms. And that kind of proving that you suffered enough in order to access resources usually leads to a more charity-based response or access to resources without really addressing what are these inequalities that we have? What are these power disparities that we have in society every day? Where do they come from? Do we want to change those structures of society to have something where people are not so unequally affected when there's a calamitous event, you know? I think that's a really important part of this is how do societies navigate those conversations like about, about real structural change rather than just ending up talking about, did you suffer enough to have access to these recovery resources? Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up because in many ways, the folks in Penipe in the villages and the resettlement communities where I've been working for well over a decade now, they have made, I think, an intervention into that in important ways. It's it doesn't it doesn't steer clear of all the politics, right? Far from it. But they frequently demonstrate deservingness through Mingo. Mm. So village leaders will come out when they want to attract a government program or an NGO. They always make a big show of organizing their village and making sure it really needs to show up for this. We need to show that we're the hard workers. And the outside agencies will come in and say, we chose your community because you have the reputation of really showing up for Minga. And that is, I think, at least at first glance, preferable than 
suffering as a form of deservingness. But obviously there's a politics too, to this sort of labor, right? And I talk about in the book how Minga evolved through over the course of the Spanish empire and, and the early Ecuadorian Republic as a type of grammar for the state and for elites to claim the bodies and the labor and the time of indigenous and subsequently campesino peoples. So there is a, still this claiming of people's bodies, right, for projects of the state. But again, the politics doesn't end there. That's another entryway into this politics where once we enter into Mingo, we're in this discursive field of, you know, these morals, these ethics of fairness, of accountability. The state is compelled to reciprocate and on certain terms of fairness. And, and so that's an ongoing sort of political process and set of political relations and discourses that it's only changing, which is why it was such a challenge to collect everything <laughs> in the book in a way so that you can appreciate that sort of many splendored aspect of Minga, because it's different things to different people or, or different things to the same people at different times, right? It's being negotiated and practiced in different ways. Let me ask a very different question. We cannot talk to you and not mention vulnerability, our favorite, in quotation mark, concept, right? We spend hours now exchanging emails and just our thoughts about vulnerability. And thank you so much for really helping Jason and me to kind of frame some of our writing and some of our thinking. We really appreciate your, you giving us time and engaging with some of the ramblings <laughs> that, that we're so good at writing. So... Vulnerability, something that you don't necessarily explicitly refer to in your book, but it is prominent in your work otherwise. And so I have this million dollar question for you. How do we turn from this labeling of the vulnerable, right, of the weak? How do we turn from pity to the idea of solidarity? <laughs> That's a question. For the record, there is a good deal of vulnerability in the book. I do, sure, I do, sure. there are long portions of the book where I suppose if you blink, you'll miss it because I'm choosing like to describe what's happening and to describe these processes rather than, as you said, just label them. Mm. Here's a vulnerable person. That's a vulnerable place. This is a vulnerable thing because that's not how I think about it. I think that this question is really a tricky bit of business. The challenge is to find ways to think about and enact community action in a context of vulnerability without making either of, I think, at least two major mistakes. The first possible mistake that we could make in trying to transform this conversation would be to offer community action as Minga as the inverse of vulnerability, right? Mm. In my work, and especially in my collaborations with my friend and my dear friend and frequent accomplice, Beth Marino, we've pointed to the fact that while vulnerability is marked on bodies, it is experienced in communities, it is not produced in either one of these locations, right? It's not produced on the body. It's not produced in community. And so at the risk of being sort of catty about this, I mean, I think that's the problem with a lot of resilience thinking, mm. which tends to 
offer local action as the inverse of a problem that is not produced locally. Uh, and the second issue that we have to, I think, be mindful of when we want to transform vulnerability thinking is to be mindful of confusing the is and the ought. To my mind, vulnerability is just our key word, right, that we use for discussing how disasters are produced in society and how their impacts are distributed unequally. We have a lot of sophisticated ways of thinking about and talking about it, but I mean, that's what it boils down to, I think. And it's about how people actively contend with risk hazards and disasters from positions of unequal power. So that's the is part that we document in our research. And a big part, I think, of the is of vulnerability, which I really hope to convey in my work with Penny Benyos on Minga and other projects, is that it's not produced behind their backs. And they're not passive victims. The vulnerability they experience is other than what it would have been had it not been for their creative and tenacious mm. energy. But you can only go so far down that road without getting tripped up by counterfactuals and stuff like this. This does nevertheless signal opportunities for solidarity, for recognizing people's capacities and importantly, their own cultural logics of the good which is sort of the topic of the third part of the book, their visions for what we ought to be doing. I think if we recognize local capacities and not mere deficits, then hopefully we can foster the development of more, let's just say, people-first strategies for disaster prevention, response, and recovery. But I'm a social scientist. I think a lot of people making interventions into this to try and think of the positive aspect of vulnerability, folks like Judith Butler and others, they're doing political philosophy. They're trying to come up with new strategies for political action, right? And that's not necessarily my job as, as an anthropologist or as a theorist or as an a, applied scholar, but to really call our attention to what is in this vulnerability and how we ought to work with communities and have communities lead with their own cultural logics of the good. I think that's an important part of transforming and making interventions into this. But at the risk of sounding pessimistic, I think the state, and even in my own weird sort of deconstructed take on the state that I do in the book, it the state tends towards very statist logics that standardize and regulate spaces and population. And so while I maintain an optimism of the will, like Antonio Gramsci, I find myself really haunted by this pessimism of the intellect. Solidarity is a grassroots thing. The state is never going to fund the revolution. So that's the challenge of trying to translate this line of thinking into action. I mean, the idea is to then to build grassroots coalitions and strategies for solidaristic, anti-disastrous action. And I think we're going to have to continue to be creative with this. I think one way into this I found is through Minga in Penipe, but we're going to have to find similar institutions and relationalities to work and collaborate with elsewhere. 
And there are plenty. It's just very often we close our eyes or perhaps don't want to admit that they are. Thank you, AJ. This has been amazing. We could talk to you for hours, as you know. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. And for the listeners, if you haven't read AJ's book yet, you really should. We will put the link into the show notes. Yeah, thanks, AJ. Thank you so much. This has been such a treat. I've been looking forward to hanging out with you for I don't know how long. So it's yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you on this program. I'm a huge fan. You guys are such a force of good in the world. I'm a little behind now. I'm not quite caught up on season seven, but I look forward to these episodes and been an active listener since the first one dropped. Thank you so Thank much. You. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, AJ Foss, the Disasters Deconstructed podcast. Natural disasters. (laughs) Naturally deconstructed. And naturally, it's a podcast. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.